We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. Today, three landmark speeches by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as chosen by King scholars. The 1965 Selma to Montgomery Address. How long, not long, because no lie can live forever. His Beyond Vietnam speech opposing the war. We still have a choice today, nonviolent coexistence a violent co-annihilation. And his prophetic last remarks the day before he was killed. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. Also, comments from the scholars who chose those speeches. Three landmark speeches by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Today on a special edition of Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Martin Luther King Jr., Three Landmark Speeches, a Peace Talks radio special. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how we could reduce conflict between each other in our relationships, in our schools, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it on Peace Talks Radio. I'm Elaine Baumgartel with Paul Ingalls. The series also spotlights great peacemakers from throughout history. And such is the case today, as we revisit several key speeches of American civil rights leader and Nobel Peace Laureate, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. King's oratory skills are legendary. Just about every schoolchild is taught to know King's I Have a Dream speech from the August 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. I have a dream. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Excellences, ladies and gentlemen. On December 10, 1964, in Oslo, Norway, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. accepted the Nobel Peace Prize. I accept this award today with an abiding faith in America and an audacious faith in the future of mankind. I refuse to accept despair as the final response to the ambiguities of history. I refuse to accept the idea that the isness of man's present nature makes him morally incapable of reaching up for the eternal oughtness that forever confronts him. I believe that unarmed truth An unconditional love will have the final word in reality. This is why right, temporarily defeated, is stronger than evil triumphant. I believe that even amid today's mortar bursts and whining bullets, there is still hope for a brighter tomorrow. I believe that wounded justice, lying prostrate on the blood-flowing streets of our nations, can be lifted from this dust of shame to reign supreme among the children of men. I have the audacity to believe that peoples everywhere can have three meals a day for their bodies, education and culture for their minds, and dignity, equality, and freedom for their spirits. I believe that what self-centered men have torn down Men other centered can build up. 
Dr. Martin Luther King stayed at the front of the push for civil rights in the United States until his assassination on April 4, 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee. Peacetalk's radio producer Paul Ingalls interviewed two leading King scholars, asking each to pick speeches from those years to focus on. You'll hear from Dr. Vincent Harding, professor of religion and social transformation at Iliff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado, and a personal friend and speechwriting colleague of Dr. King in the 1960s. Also mixed into our program, you'll hear Dr. Claiborne Carson, who at Coretta Scott King's request has been directing the King Papers Project since 1985. Dr. Carson established the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University in 2005. The speeches these scholars chose were King's last address the night before his assassination in Memphis in April 1968, also the speech he made a year to the day before he was killed, called Beyond Vietnam, in which Dr. King came out publicly and explicitly in opposition to the Vietnam War. But first to March of 1965, and Dr. King's remarks that he made at the conclusion of the Selma to Montgomery marches, considered a turning point in the struggle for voting rights and equality for African Americans. King spoke at the end of an eight-day march, the third march of that month. In the two earlier marches, Alabama state and local police had attacked protesters with billy clubs and tear gas. The march King finished with his remarks saw protesters under the protection of thousands of federal soldiers and reservists. 25,000 had gathered at the Alabama State Capitol building March 25th to hear Dr. King's address. They told us we wouldn't get here. There were those who said that we would get here only over that dead body. All the world today knows that we are here and we are standing before the forces of power in the state of Alabama saying we ain't going to let nobody turn us around. Dr. Vincent Harding. He is coming at this moment in March 1965 to the end of one of the great occasions in the movement, in his leadership, in his companionship, especially with the people of the South who had been working so hard around this issue of the right to vote and had drawn thousands of people from other parts of the country to be with them in this great pilgrimage from Selma to Montgomery. To get to Montgomery alive was itself a great victory to call the attention of the nation and the president of the nation to what was going on was a great accomplishment. The confrontation of good and evil compressed in the tiny community of Selma generated the massive power turned the whole nation to a new course. A president born in the South had the sensitivity to feel the will of the country. And in an address that will live in history, as one of the most passionate pleas for human rights ever made by the president of our nation, he pledged the might of the federal government to cast off the centuries-old blight. President Johnson rightly praised the courage 
of the Negro for awakening the conscience of the nation. Yes, sir. On our part, we must pay our profound respect to the white Americans who cherish their democratic traditions over the ugly customs and privileges of generations come forth boldly to join hands with us. Yes, from Montgomery to Birmingham, yes, from Birmingham to Selma, yes, from Selma back to Montgomery. Yes. Today I want to say to the state of Alabama, yes, today I want to say to the people of America and the nations of the world that we are not about to turn around. We are on the move now. Yes, sir. Yes, we are on the move, and no wave of racism can stop us. That continuing refrain, we are on the move now, meaning we are not here to admire ourselves, to congratulate ourselves, but simply to prepare ourselves for the next stages, because he immediately goes into issues of poverty, of urban decay, of homelessness, of still segregated schools. He moves on to all the issues which would become the issues right into our own century. We're on the move now. Mm -hmm. The burning of our churches will not deter us. Yes, sir. Farming of our homes will not dissuade us. We are on the move now. Yes, the feeding and killing of our clergymen and young people will not divert us. We are on the move now. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The weapon release of their known murderers will not discourage us. We are on the move now. Yes, sir. Like an idea whose time has come. Yes, not even the marching of mighty armies can hold us. Yes, sir. We are moving to the land of freedom. Yes, sir. Let us therefore continue our triumphant march uh -huh. to the realization of the American dream. Yes, sir. Let us march on segregated housing. Yes, sir. Until every ghetto of social and economic depression. Yes, sir. Dissolve the Negroes and whites live side by side in decent, safe, and sanitary housing. Yes, sir. Let us march on segregated schools, yeah, until every vestige of segregated and inferior education becomes a thing of the past, mm -hmm. and Negroes and whites study side by side mm -hmm. in the socially healing context of the classroom. Mm -hmm. Let us march on poverty, let us march, until no American parent mm -hmm. has to skip a meal so that their children may eat. Yes, March on poverty. March. Until no starved man walks the streets of our cities and towns yes, in search of jobs that do not exist. Yes, sir. Let us march on poverty. Let us march. Until wrinkled stomachs in Mississippi are filled. Yes, and the idle industries of Appalachia are realized and revitalized and broken lives in sweltering ghettos are mended and remolded. Let us march on ballot boxes. Yes, march. march on ballot boxes until race beaters disappear mm -hmm. from the political arena. Mm -hmm. Let us march on ballot boxes. 
until the radium misdeeds of bloodthirsty mob yes, sir. will be transformed into the calculated good deeds of orderly citizens. Think, Let us march on ballot until we send to our city council, yes, sir. state legislatures, yes, and the United States Congress, yes, men who will not fear to do justly, yes, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. Let us march on ballot Dr. Harding, as an orator, talk about how Dr. King combines a poetic lyricism with content that actually helps listeners and his audience confront their fears and overcome them at the same time. He understood that one major role that he was called upon to play was essentially to say to people, it is understandable If you feel some fear, but do not let the fear overcome you, because we are in connection with the rightness of the universe and the spirit of justice and rightness is on our side, just as we are on its side. Keep going. Do not allow understandable fears to stop us. Vincent Harding is an associate and friend of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. He's written extensively about him, including the book Martin Luther King, The Inconvenient Hero. Dr. Harding, talk with me for a moment about this section in this speech where he confronts, Dr. King confronts the concept of normalcy. I know that is a cry today in Alabama. We see it in numerous editorials. When will Martin Luther King, SCLC, SNCC, and all of these civil rights agitators and all of the white clergymen and labor leaders and students and others get out of our community and let Alabama return to normalcy? Well, it seems to me that that is, again, the role of the loving, demanding pastor prophet saying to us not just that we have to go back to anything, but that we have to go forward to the places that we have not yet been in terms of our potentials. And he is saying in a deep way to Alabama, as one example, that what you have experienced in the past must not uh, be allowed to be your judgment of what is good and what is necessary and what is needed for your life. You must now begin to envision a new society, as he put it, a new normalcy, which brings us together, black and white, into a new new Alabama. I have a message that I would like to leave with Alabama this evening. That is exactly what we don't want and we will not allow it to happen. We know that it was normalcy in Marion that led to the brutal murder of Jimmy Lee Jackson. It was normalcy in Birmingham 
led to the murder on Sunday morning of four beautiful, unoffending, innocent girls. It was now mostly on Highway 80. Yes, sir. It led state troopers to use tear gas and horses and billy clubs against unarmed human beings who were simply marching for justice. It was now mostly by a cafe in Selma, Alabama, that led to the brutal beating of Reverend, J Reverend James Rare. It is now mostly all over our country. Yes, sir. Which leaves the Negro perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. It is normalcy all over Alabama that prevents the Negro from becoming a registered voter. No, we will not allow Alabama to return to normalcy. In a sense, he was saying the same thing to the country. Do not accept segregation, either by law or by practice, as an acceptable way of life. In a sense, he was saying, we can do much better than that. <laughs> and if you allow yourself to move in that direction, you will see how beautiful we can possibly be. Only normalcy that we will settle for is the normalcy that recognizes the dignity and worth of all of God's children. The only normalcy that we will settle for is the normalcy that allows judgment to run down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. The only normalcy that we will settle for is the normalcy of brotherhood, the normalcy of true peace, the normalcy of justice. And so as we go away this afternoon, let us go away more than ever before, committed to this struggle and committed to nonviolence. I know you're asking today, how long will it take? Somebody's asking, how long will prejudice blind the visions of men? Just as he was boldly asking his audience to confront their fears, it seems that he tackles maybe the next most common objection in social movements, that change takes too long. How long? Not long, he says again and again toward the end of this speech. In his private moments, was there a sense that things in 1965 were starting to move faster than they ever had and that he, he could really himself believe in the, the not long of his own speech? I am not sure about what he was thinking concerning movement at that time. By 1965, many of the young people of the black community, especially in the North, there was evidence that they were growing impatient, that they were growing more angry, and that they were feeling a need, which is, as you know, so terribly American, to get everything done now. Speaking about the various tasks that had to be done, Martin knew that those things could not be done overnight, could not be done, quote, now. What he knew was they had to begin now. People had to commit themselves to do the work now, but he was much too wise 
and much too compassionate, a teacher, a pastor, a leader, to give the impression that somehow things would be immediately changed. At the same moment, he did not want people to feel that never was the answer either. So he kept calling, not long. How long, not long. Because no lie can live forever. How long, not long. Because you shall reap what you sow. How long, not long. Because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. How long, not long. Because my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the village where the gates of wrath are stored. He's loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He's lifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. His truth is marching on. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrapping up his remarks on March 25, 1965, at the end of a third civil rights march from Selma to Montgomery, with 25,000 looking on. You heard comments from King's colleague and King scholar, Dr. Vincent Harding. More coming up from Dr. Harding about a speech Dr. King gave exactly one year before his death. The Beyond Vietnam speech is next, as MLK, Three Landmark Speeches, continues on Peace Talks Radio. Listening to a special edition of Peace Talks Radio, marking three landmark speeches from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm Elaine Baumgartel with Paul Engels. You can hear all of the programs in this series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution dating back to 2002 online at peacetalksradio.com. Today, Paul Engels is talking with King scholars Dr. Vincent Harding and Dr. Claiborne Carson about three speeches they chose as important moments in Dr. King's history and examples of the art of his oratory. Next, April 4, 1967, a year to the day before King was assassinated, he made a major speech at New York City's Riverside Church detailing his opposition to the Vietnam War. Again, Dr. Vincent Harding talked with Paul Ingalls. Martin had been 
looking for an opportunity to express the fullness of his opposition to the war and to explain as fully as possible why that position was totally in keeping with his position as what people called the leader of the civil rights movement in America. And when clergy and laymen concerned about the war in Vietnam asked him if he would come to Riverside Church to one of their major gatherings and speak on the war, he felt that that was just the kind of setting and situation that he needed. Vincent Harding was a professor at Spelman College in Atlanta at the time and got the call from Dr. King to prepare a first draft of the remarks. Much of Harding's early draft language stayed in after King's edits, including the memorable start to the speech. I come to this magnificent house of worship tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. The recent statements of your executive committee are the sentiments of my own heart, and I found myself in full accord when I read its opening lines. A time comes when silence is betrayal. That time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. The truth of these words is beyond doubt, but the mission to which they call us is a most difficult one. Even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war. Nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty against all the apathy of conformist thought within one's own bosom and in the surrounding world. Over the past two years, as I have moved to break the betrayal of my own silences and to speak from the burnings of my own heart, as I have called for radical departures from the destruction of Vietnam, many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. Why are you speaking about the war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voices of dissent? Peace and civil rights don't mix, they say. Aren't you hurting the cause of your people, they ask. And when I hear them, though I often understand the source of their concern, I'm nevertheless greatly saddened, for such questions mean that the inquirers have not really known me, my commitment or my calling. Indeed, their questions suggest that they do not know the world in which they live. Tonight, however, I wish not to speak with Hanoi and the National Liberation Front, but rather to my fellow Americans. That is, at the outset, a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, 
through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the build-up in Vietnam, and I watched this program broken and eviscerated as if it was some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor so long as adventures like Vietnam continued to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. Dr. Harding, were there, in fact, poverty programs being defunded to finance the war in Congress? I am not close enough to that documentation to be able to speak with intelligence about that now. My comment that I would make on that is that throughout world history, it has been very, very clear that it is literally impossible for a country to be an imperial force in the world and at the same moment to tend to the needs of its own poorest people. Uh, He didn't hold back, Dr. King. He exposed the ugliest underbelly of the Vietnam War by offering details about what our troops were doing to the population in the South and the North in order to beat back the North Vietnamese. These were descriptions that, at the time in 1967, were unbeknownst to most Americans. So they go, primarily women and children and the aged. They watch as we poison their water. As we kill a million acres of their crops, they must weep as the bulldozers roll through their areas, preparing to destroy the precious trees. They wandered into the hospitals with at least 20 casualties from American firepower for one Viet Cong-inflicted injury. So far, we may have killed a million of them, mostly children. They wander into the towns and see thousands of the children, homeless, without clothes, running in packs on the streets like animals. They see the children degraded by our soldiers as they beg for food. They see the children selling their sisters to our soldiers, soliciting for their mothers. What do the peasants think as we allow ourselves with the landlords and as we refuse to put any action into our many words concerning land reform? What do they think as we test out our latest weapons on them? just as the Germans tested out new medicine and new tortures in the concentration camps of Europe, where are the roots of the independent Vietnam we claim to be building? Is it among these voiceless ones? We have destroyed their two most cherished institutions, the family and the village. We have destroyed their land and their crops, We have cooperated in the crushing of the nation's only non-communist revolutionary political force, the unified Buddhist church. We have supported the enemies of the peasants of Saigon. 
We have corrupted their women and children and killed their men. Now that is little left to build on save bitterness. And then he takes an even greater risk in his speech by calling for empathy for the uh, North Vietnamese. When we look for relevance in this speech to people's everyday struggles with conflict, there seems to be a lot to offer in these lines which follow Dr. King's suggestion of empathy. Martin understood himself in many ways, Paul, to be a kind of pastor to the nation. And he was speaking out of the context that comes from all of the great religious teachings. Essentially, he was saying, have we not been taught to treat others as we would want to be treated ourselves, that we are all God's children? Have we not been taught that that means that we are called upon to feel with others, especially the deep pain that they are experiencing, and especially when our own country is without justification becoming the major source of that pain. King was essentially asking people to take their religion seriously. He was saying there must be another way to deal with our enemies. Well, he goes from specific to general. He does take the speech to five points to follow to end the war, but then he broadens the scope. One of the more powerful lines is, we, we must, must rapidly, rapidly begin, begin the, the shift, shift from, from a thing-oriented thing society to a person-oriented society when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. True revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation. It will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just, it will look at our alliance with the landed gentry of South America and say this is not just. 
the Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hand on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. These words spoken by Dr. King in 1967 prompt the question these many years later, is there any hopeful sign that we've even slowed a bit to the approach of the spiritual death that he referred to? Now, what I find is that there are a lot of younger people who have become very thing-oriented, as you know, and we have made it much too easy for them to become thing-oriented and to spend even much, so much of their time looking at things that they no longer look at other human beings. But at the same moment, Paul, I find coming out of that whole situation also young people who know that that is not the way of life, who want to find a way of life rather than of death. And I'm encouraged to know that they are there. They are looking for encouragement. They are looking for some of us who are elders to accompany them as they seek to find out what their role is at this point in the history of our country. So I myself feel that on a certain level, despair about the USA at this stage is a matter of choice. And I choose not to despair. And I think Martin would be in that same community of choice. Well, he says, in fact, in the speech, we still have a choice today. Yes. And every day, as long as we are alive, we have a choice. We still have a choice today. Nonviolent coexistence, a violent co-annihilation. We must move past indecision to action. We must find new ways to speak for peace in Vietnam and justice throughout the developing world, a world that borders on our doors. If we do not act, we shall surely be dragged down the long, dark, and shameful corridors of time, reserved for those who possess power without compassion, might without morality, and strength without sight. Now let us begin. Now let us rededicate ourselves to the long and bitter but beautiful struggle for a new world, 
And if we will only make the right choice, we will be able to transform this pending cosmic elegy into a creative psalm of peace. If we will make the right choice, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our world into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. If we will but make the right choice, we will be able to speed up the day all over America and all over the world when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Beyond Vietnam speech delivered at New York's Riverside Church April 4, 1967, exactly a year before he was killed. You heard commentary from the man who helped King write that speech, his friend, colleague, and still a Dr. King scholar, Dr. Vincent Harding. 364 days later, Dr. King was delivering what proved to be his last speech on a stormy night in Memphis, Tennessee. We'll return to that after this break. This is MLK, Three Landmark Speeches, a Peace Talks radio special. Back in a moment. You're listening to MLK, Three Landmark Speeches, a Peace Talks Radio special. Peace Talks Radio is the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. And you can hear all the programs in the series dating back to 2002 online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm Elaine Baumgartel with Paul Engels. Next, we turn to Dr. Martin Luther King's final address, given just hours before he was gunned down by a long-distance rifle as he stood on the balcony of the second floor of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. The night before, he was at the Mason Temple, giving a speech in support of the striking Memphis sanitation workers, a speech that is now known for its dramatic, prophetic language in its closing moments. Here's Paul Ingalls with Dr. Claiborne Carson, who has been directing the King Papers Project since 1985. Dr. Carson established the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University in 2005. Remind us, Dr. Carson, in selecting his themes and stories for this particular talk, what do you think Dr. King was hoping to communicate or achieve, or or, or what do you think it reveals about this moment in King's journey? I I think he laid out his post-civil rights agenda when he uh, gave his Nobel Prize Peace Prize lecture. And there he said that uh, racial injustice was only one of the three issues that were the central problems of of mankind on a global basis. And the other two had to do with poverty and war. It's not that surprising that a couple of years later, he's delivering 
his uh, Riverside speech attacking American involvement in the Vietnam War, that he was uh, focusing on the issue of poverty. These were the issues that drove him as a leader who had always seen the connections, the linkages between the American civil rights movement and broader movements, both in the United States and elsewhere in the world. Dr. King begins with kind of a sketch of human history in the first part of his oration here. And I would see Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Euripides, and Aristophanes assemble around the Parthenon. When, when you look at Martin Luther King's great orations, um, one thing he does in all of them is he takes the immediate issue and puts it in a broader context. The audience in front of him are, are there because they're involved in a labor strike. They're trying to get more dollars per hour for their, for their work and have better working conditions. But he uh, tries to tell them that it's not about getting 20 cents more an hour for your work or 10 cents more an hour. That's not what is really driving this. It's you're part of a freedom movement that was going on before you were born, and it will affect your children and grandchildren. And watch a vacillating president by the name of Abraham Lincoln finally come to the conclusion that he had to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, but I wouldn't stop there. And I think that's what the audience, people in the audience were responding to, was that uh, he was giving them a deeper, more uh, important reason for doing what they were doing and sustaining the strike. Because, you know, when you think about it, most strikes, uh, it takes you years to gain back what you've lost in, in wages. So if it were just that, but strikes are also about dignity. And he was saying that this is this is a freedom movement that is comparable to the great freedom movements throughout history. And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up and wherever they are assembled today, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same, we want to be free. And another reason that I'm happy to live in this period is that we have been forced to a point where we are going to have to grapple with the problems that men have been trying to grapple with through history, but the demands didn't force them to do it. Survival demands that we grapple with them. Men for years now have been talking about war and peace, but now no longer can they just talk about it. It is no longer the choice between violence and nonviolence in this world. It's nonviolence or non-existence. That is where we are today. We are masters in our nonviolent movement. 
in disarming police forces. They don't know what to do. I've seen them so often. I remember in Birmingham, Alabama, when we were in that majestic struggle there, we would move out of the 16th Street Baptist Church day after day. By the hundreds, we would move out, and Bull Connor would tell them to send the dogs for us. And they did come. But we just went before the dogs singing, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. Bull Connor next would say, turn the fire hoses on. And as I said to you the other night, Bull Connor didn't know history. He knew a kind of physics that somehow didn't relate to the trans physics that we knew about. And that was the fact that there was a certain kind of fire that no water could put out. And we went before the fire hoses. We had known water. If we were Baptists or some other denominations, we had been immersed. If we were Methodists and some others, we had been sprinkled, but we knew water. That couldn't stop us. And we just went on before the dogs and we would look at them and we'd go on before the water hoses and we would look at it and we'd just go on singing over my head, I see freedom in there. And then we would be thrown into paddy wagons and sometimes we were stacked in there like sardines in a can. And they would throw us in and old bull would say, take them off, and they did, and we would just go on in the paddy wagon singing, We Shall Overcome. And every now and then we'd get in jail and we'd see the jailers looking through the windows, being moved by our prayer, and being moved by our words and our song. And there was a power there which Bull Connor couldn't adjust, adjust to. And so we ended up transforming Bull into a steer, and we won our struggle in Birmingham. Now let me say as I move to my conclusion, that we've got to give ourselves to this struggle until the end. Nothing would be more tragic than to stop at this point in Memphis, we've got to see it through. And Dr. Carson, of course, one of the most memorable things about this speech is this ominous hint that Dr. King suggests that he might not get there with his audience. And he even tells this story about a previous assassination attempt, of course, all on the eve of his own assassination. You know, several years ago, I was in New York City autographing the first book that I had written. And while sitting there autographing books, a demented black woman came up. The only question I heard from her was, are you Martin Luther King? And I was looking down writing and I said, yes. 
The next minute I felt something beating on my chest. Before I knew it, I had been stabbed by this demented woman. I was rushed to Harlem Hospital, and that blade had gone through, and the x-rays revealed that the tip of the blade was on the edge of my aorta, the main artery. And once that's punctured, you're drowned in your own blood. That's the end of you. It came out in the New York Times the next morning that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. Well, about four days later, they allowed me, after the operation, to move around in the wheelchair in the hospital. They allowed me to read some of the mail that came in, and from all over the states and the world, kind letters came in. I read a few, but one of them I will never forget. It said simply, Dear Dr. King, I am a ninth grade student at the White Plains High School. She said, while it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering. And I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died. And I'm simply writing you to say that I'm so happy that you didn't sneeze. I want to say tonight that I, too, am happy that I didn't sneeze, because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960, when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. And I knew that as they were sitting in, they were really standing up for the best in the American dream and taking the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1961 when we decided to take a ride for freedom. King understands that it's a privilege to be there as these victories are occurring. Uh, to be part of that that struggle, many wonderful people in the history of the world, you know, uh, Gandhi never really got the opportunity to live in a free India. Many people don't survive the struggle, but King understood that it's if the goal is worth it, if you found something worth dying for, then you don't have that fear of death. And I think that's what he wanted to convey to his audience that he had seen some momentous changes in the world and, and that had made his life worth living. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have had a chance later that year in August to try to tell America about a dream that I had had. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama to see the great movement there if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been in Memphis to see a community rally around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. Do you think it was important for him, knowing that he was vulnerable, as you say, to set the table for that possibility explicitly to say, you don't need me, I may not be there with you, so prepare yourself for that? I, I think that that is a large measure of what he's he's trying to get across. Um, I think he always understood that he was not an essential part of that great struggle. 
Rosa Parks wasn't waiting for Martin Luther King to give her instructions. Uh, the students involved in the sit-ins and the freedom rights weren't waiting for a message from Martin Luther King in order to launch uh, those, those great movements of the early 1960s. King understood more than most people who said they followed him that he did not initiate the struggle and he could not control it. All he could do was to try to inspire it by saying that the struggle is worth it, um, that it's toward a worthwhile goal. And in his great speeches, he gives us a glimpse of that future that he will never live to see. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Dr. Martin Luther King's final public address, the night before his murder in Memphis, April 4th, 1968. To find links to these entire speeches, as well as transcripts and our complete interviews with Dr. Claiborne Carson and Dr. Vincent Harding, visit peacetalksradio.com and look for the January 2014 episode. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can also find links to all of the programs in the series going back to 2002. There, you can hear the programs streaming, order CDs of many of them, sign up for a monthly newsletter or a free podcast, and it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to the nonprofit media organization that produces this program, separate and apart from your local public radio station, all at peacetalksradio.com. In addition to support from listeners like you, Peace Talks Radio receives support from the Eric Oppenheimer Family Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Paul Ray Peace Prize, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Allie Edelman composed and performs our theme music. For Paul Ingalls, I'm Elaine Baumgartel. Thank you for listening to and supporting Peace Talks Radio. <laughs>